Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and today marks 59 years since President Kennedy's assassination in Dallas, Texas. I was very honored to interview the curator and oral historian for the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, Stephen Fagan, to talk about the museum, their oral history program, the impact the assassination had on Dallas, and a lot more. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. So without further ado, here it is. Here I am joined by the curator and the oral historian for the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, Stephen Fagan. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Before we get started, though, will you please tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your role at the Sixth Floor Museum? Sure. Uh, I am a Dallas native, born and raised here, and I joined the museum staff in 2000. So I've been here for quite a while. My job title has changed uh, several times over the years. Uh, as curator, I uh, basically have a hand in a number of different activities here. I work with our collections department. I work with exhibitions, uh, public programming, sometimes with education. Uh, I, I sort of, I'm sort of the content expert when people want to ask specific questions about the Kennedy assassination or about the impact the assassination had on Dallas or our own institutional history here at the museum, I'm usually the person they come to. That's fantastic. You are a wealth of knowledge, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> a huge part of your work has been the Oral History Project. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, it is my passion and uh, in many ways my pride and joy. Uh, we started recording oral histories and oral histories basically being informal conversations with people about their their memories and their thoughts on President Kennedy, the assassination, and, and more broadly 1960s history and culture. Uh, we started recording them really right around the time our institution opened way back in 1989. And the oral history project, I like to say, started by accident uh, because this is um, such a historic site, such an emotional site for people around the world that inevitably, right when our exhibit opened in 1989, people arrived just needing to share their memories of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, we had motorcade spectators come in wanting to talk about seeing the president uh, on Main Street that day. We had in the early months of the museum's opening, we had Jack Ruby's brother Earl come and visit. We had eyewitnesses to the assassination come. And so recognizing this extraordinary opportunity, uh, our staff members, our early staff members just kind of borrowed some tape recorders and began to do some on-the-spot uh, audio cassette recordings, and that was really the foundation for what became the Oral History Project. We got a video camera in 1992, and so we started videotaping the interviews, going out into the community, talking to people who had not necessarily gone on the record before about their memories of the assassination. People like the district attorney of Dallas County, Henry Wade, uh, Dallas Cowboys coach Tom Landry, Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus. So a, a lot of kind of high profile Dallas business leaders who had not really talked about the assassination much over the years. And from there, it just has grown and evolved. Um, I, I kind of took over the project around 2001, 2002. Uh, we really tried to broaden it right around 2006, uh, having done so many interviews uh, specifically focused on the assassination, we decided that some 
context was necessary, especially for younger people who might access these recordings. So we began really more broadly reaching out to people who could comment on the history and culture of the time. Uh, that would include Peace Corps volunteers, NASA personnel, uh, civil rights activists, anti-war demonstrators to really give us a picture of the era. So today, uh, the Oral History Project includes about 2,000 recordings uh, with people all over the world, including wow. yourself. You uh, you did an oral history uh, earlier this year, and, and that's, a, that's a great example. We actually talked to a fair number of people that we call non-rememberers, those mm -hmm. without firsthand memories of 1963, but people who nonetheless have been in some way um, connected to the legacy of President Kennedy, inspired by Kennedy or the assassination, uh, including, you know, poets, novelists, musicians, uh, sculptors, people who have responded in various ways, trying to document that. So it's uh, big and broad, and we are actively trying to get as much of that uh, oral history content available online as possible. That's amazing. It's such an amazing just collection of memories and people. It's, it's fascinating. I love that you guys do that. And I'm sure there's so many, but what is a particular story that you've heard from the Oral History Project that really deep impacted you? One that just stands out in your mind? Oh, goodness. Um, there There's are probably so many. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many. And, uh, and I've, I've done every one of them really since I, I got here. Uh, so it's, it's really become a passion of mine. Um, one story in particular that always touches me um, comes from the um, women's news editor of the Dallas Times Herald on November 22nd, 1963, a fantastic lady, sadly now gone, uh, named Vivian Castleberry. And Vivian, um, you know, was in charge of women's news, which at that time was, you know, typically bridal announcements yeah. and society type things. But but Vivian was really, even back then in the early 60s, really pushing for harder news stories. She was a pioneer. Uh, she's considered, you know, the grandmother of women journalism in Dallas. Um, she was at the trademark, the luncheon site where the president was planning to speak that day. And uh, she was, of course, caught up in the chaos after the assassination, went back to her newspaper and worked the entire day. The, the back story to that is what is so powerful to me. Early that morning, she dropped off her teenage daughter downtown to see the parade. Uh, in Dallas, uh, school kids could get an excused absence if their parents uh, signed a permission slip saying they were going to go see President Kennedy. So, I mean, this was 1963, so she felt perfectly fine dropping mm -hmm. off her teenage daughter downtown. But after the assassination, you know, Vivian worked till the early hours of Saturday morning, so she wasn't home until early the next day, at which point uh, she went up to check on her daughter who was in her bedroom. And at that moment, her daughter just shot up in bed and wrapped her arms around her mm -hmm. mother and squeezed her tight. And Vivian talks about how in that moment, she stopped being a reporter and became a mom. And her daughter looked at her with tears streaming down her face. And all she said was, mother, his hair was red in the sunlight. Oh, and you're going to make a, me cry with this story. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's a it's a it's a powerful thing. And, and I Absolutely. think that's indicative of the oral history project, because in many ways, um, it's therapy really, mm -hmm. for so many people, um, coming to terms with maybe some unprocessed trauma that they've never thought to deal with in any way. 
when you think back to the the stoicism of the 50s and the greatest generation, you know, these baby boomers grew up uh, taught to internalize trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't you don't go to therapy, you don't talk about it. And so for so many kids without the access that we have today to school counselors and and mental health, uh, so many of these baby boomers have these unprocessed feelings about the assassination. Uh, I interviewed Vivian's daughter and she very much fits into that category. Someone who really had never processed the the trauma she experienced seeing him that day just a few minutes uh, before he was killed. And uh, it includes my parents who have also done Mm -hmm. oral histories. Um, The reason I am here undoubtedly is because of my parents who were both Dallas elementary school students on November 22nd, 1963. There's a a power, I think, especially of being a young person Mm -hmm. living through those extraordinary days. Absolutely. And clearly that all actually ties with my next question about the Dallas history. Um, You wrote a book called Assassination and Commemoration, JFK, Dallas, and the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, which is truly fascinating. I really, really enjoy your book. Um, Tell us a bit about the struggle of the museum's development and how hard the assassination was on the Dallas community. Sure. Uh, Dallas was deeply impacted, as was the nation and the world, by the events of the assassination. But Dallas in particular, because in the years leading up to the Kennedy assassination, Dallas had developed a reputation, uh, largely unfair, of being this hotbed of of radical political activity. There had been a couple of incidents prior to Kennedy coming uh, in 1960, just four days before that 1960 campaign. uh, Lyndon Johnson and his wife were here for a a, uh, a luncheon just a few blocks from Dealey Plaza by the Adolphus Hotel, and a crowd of political demonstrators uh, kicked the Johnsons, spit on them, wow. stuck them with pins. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson had her gloves ripped from her hands and thrown in the gutter. Um, her, a horrific scene, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And and four days before the election, you know, um, there's some thought among uh, historians, uh, political historians, that that maybe that incident in Dallas, which the Johnsons the Kennedy-Johnson campaign really used to great political benefit in those last days uh, may have, you know, impacted the amount of support that Kennedy received in the South and maybe, just maybe, you know, through the election, uh, or at least gave Kennedy Texas, which in a very close election with Richard Nixon was significant. Um, And then just a couple of years later, a month before Kennedy's visit, the United Nations ambassador Adlai Stevenson uh, was here, and he was very famously hit on the head with a sign and spit on in a moment that was captured in uh, photographs and on film and broadcast nationwide. So when Kennedy was shot, There was this belief that, oh, Dallas, you know, that's where things like this happen. It didn't matter that it was a left-leaning Marxist who was arrested for the crime. Dallas was uh, considered to be this hotbed of uh, extremism, radical conservative extremism. And so say the critics, in a toxic atmosphere like this, something like the assassination could occur. So the Oral History Project is filled with the recollections of Dallasites who remember traveling 
after November 22nd and getting accosted or yelled at, having oh, wow. rocks thrown at their car with Texas license plates. The publisher of the Dallas Times Herald newspaper remembers being in New York City the next year and being ordered out of a taxi cab because he happened to mention to the taxi cab driver that he was from Dallas. A lot of stories coming out of the 1964 New York World's Fair, uh, families traveling by car up the East Coast to New York and um, being victimized, really, because they were from Dallas. So that's a prelude to basically say this impacted Dallasites on a very deep personal level. Um, And this building, the Texas School Book Depository, for so many was a, a painful physical reminder of the assassination, one person in a letter to the editor of the newspaper called it a a manifestation of evil. And so in the aftermath of that event, no one really knew what to do with this building that was suddenly at the the site of the most visited spot in Dallas, you know, Mm -hmm. a million people coming every year just to wander the grass of Dealey Plaza, look up at the building. Um, Texas School Book Depository, the textbook company moved out in 1970. And there was just a whole series of interesting events that happened. Uh, it was briefly owned by a music promoter who wanted to open a museum, but but uh, failed. There was an arson attempt. Um, there was a, a really strong effort among the business leaders of Dallas to raise money to tear the building down, to make it into a parking lot. Uh, amazingly, um, what saved the building was the Dallas County government desperately in need of office and storage space. The public works director, a guy named Judson Shook, who officed Caddy Corner to the building, uh, just noticed people wandering around Dealey Plaza, having a largely unsatisfying experience because they would go up to the locked doors. He'd watch them walk up to those locked doors of the Texas School Book Depository and basically kind of walk away dejected. And he knew something needed to be established uh, that would put the assassination in its proper historical context and and uh, commemorate uh, President Kennedy and his legacy. And so he kind of put the purchase of the Texas School Book Depository as a tiny line item in this big 1977 bond package. And lo and behold, after the votes were counted, uh, Dallas County had bought the Texas School Book Depository. They established the seat of county government in the building and um, thus began what became ultimately a 12-year controversial effort to establish uh, an exhibit at the site. It was a long, slow process. And my book really is the story of the museum's development, but it's told within the larger story of how does a community so stained by violence and tragedy, uh, blamed internationally for that tragedy, how does it internalize that tragedy and do justice to that event by remembering it properly Mm -hmm. and establishing an integrity of memory? And so Yeah, here we are. The museum opened just over 25 years after the Kennedy assassination. And in many ways, it has been um, a trailblazer in how Mm -hmm. we preserve these sites of tragedy and violence. Um, And the window keeps getting smaller. It was 25 years for the Kennedy assassination. Uh, The Oklahoma City uh, National Memorial and Museum opened, I think, five years after the Oklahoma City bombing. And um, people began talking about a museum and a memorial at the site of the World Trade Center. I mean, literally the day of 9 11, mm-hmm. I remember I was here at the museum that day. And I remember with, you know, through, through, 
tear-stained eyes watching people already begin to contemplate um, commemorating this event so it is remembered properly. And uh, I found that to be so fascinating because no one was talking about a museum here at the site on November 22nd, 1963. But I think we have changed as a society in part because um, we have become so familiar with these these sites that become so integral to the way we preserve the, the the commonality of these tragic touchstones. Absolutely. That's something about the museum that I really admire. I think you guys have done a phenomenal job with is not only do you arrive to Dealey Plaza and you look around and it's like a time capsule. I mean, it feels like it's been so well preserved in that that spot. You feel like, I mean, you look at the photos and you look at real life and it's the same essentially. And then when you go in, I think, You've done a beautiful job of showing. You even show in the exhibit, you know, much like Pearl Harbor, much like I, th I believe you mentioned maybe Ford's Theater. I can't remember the mm -hmm. other place, but it's like this is a place where you can come remember, learn. You know, it combines us. National tragedies do, you know, unite us in a, a sense. And there's a way that we all remember such tragedy, but at the same time, we all have our memories of it. So I think the museum does a really flawless job of showing that in the exhibit. I really do. Oh, thank you. I, I feel like we all have our Kennedy assassination moment. Mm -hmm. um, the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1986 is very much my mm -hmm. Kennedy assassination moment. I, I actually write about it in the book, uh, standing there on one of the major anniversaries, the 40th anniversary in Dealey Plaza. And, you know, my mind wandered to that moment in my own timeline because these events, uh, the, the, the tragedies you mentioned, they are these cultural touchstones that build Absolutely. Bridges of of communication between generations. I agree. So, looking forward, uh, next year marks the 60th anniversary of the assassination. Can you share any plans that the museum has for 2023, or is that kind of a wait and see situation? We are uh, we are still talking about okay. ways in which we want to uh, commemorate this uh, this anniversary. There are a few of us here on staff that were here for the 50th anniversary in wow. 2013, and yeah. uh, so we we uh, we remember um, that it was an incredibly um, busy time uh, with mm -hmm. with lots of people wanting to uh, visit the site. A lot of uh, different documentary and book projects and mm -hmm. news media from all over the world. And so um, I'm not sure what the 60th will be. Uh, what's what's interesting about this anniversary in a sad way, really, is that for the 50th, we had so many of our key storytellers still with us. Mm -hmm. um, Jim Lavelle, the homicide detective handcuffed to Oswald in that famous photo where Oswald is shot by Jack Ruby, was giving interviews. Um, uh, several of the key eyewitnesses, like James Tagg, who was injured during the shooting by a chip of concrete or a bullet fragment, was giving a lot of interviews. And fast forward now nine years so many, so many of those storytellers are gone. We lost Jim Lavelle at age 99. Um, there's only one homicide detective left who was actively involved in the Kennedy investigation, and he's in his 90s now. Uh, so I think as time marches on, as this event really shifts from memory to history, uh, I think a resource like the Oral History Project will be of um, increasing value and educational significance to people because it does provide a tangible link to the moment and the memory of the assassination through mm -hmm. the experiences of the people who who lived it. Because 60 years on, unfortunately, um, 
there are just uh, fewer and fewer direct links to the assassination story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I truly love the museum. I believe that everyone should visit. Um, I will link a website to the museum so that people can purchase their tickets, go and visit, learn more. And I will also link a direct link to your book so people can purchase it as well, which I highly recommend. And Stephen, I so appreciate you coming to speak with me. Thank you so much for being here. My, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for what you do, helping to connect younger people to the story of President Kennedy and, and what he stood for. Absolutely. It's my honor. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I will have one more episode released next week, and then I'm taking the whole month of December off to spend time with my family and make podcast plans for next year. And I'm just going to let you guys know, I have got some big plans for 2023 that I still look forward to sharing with you all. Make sure you are subscribed. Please rate the podcast five stars and write a positive written review if you like it. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. Make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter and make sure that since I'm going to be off for December, I will still be posting on Instagram. So make sure that you follow me there to keep up with what's going on during that month. That's all I've got. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Come on and vote for Kennedy. Vote for Kennedy. Keep America strong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.